Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, I'll be joined by Judith Nung-Cashin, the Chief Scientific Officer of Cineos Health. Judith is an expert on many things, including rare diseases. If you are a CEO or your company is going into rare diseases, you will want to listen to Judith Nung-Cashin next on the Cineos Health Podcast. I think, Judith, as we talked before we got on the podcast, that we'd be talking about how a company that's just starting out in rare diseases, what they need to know that might not be obvious to them. What's different about rare diseases? Well, obviously, by their name, rare diseases, one thing that's different is that the disease doesn't occur in very many patients. So in the past, that's really been a barrier for drug companies, sponsors, to do drug development or therapy development in those indications because the market wasn't there and the return on investment wasn't thought to be robust enough. And this was in the days of companies going for blockbuster type drugs, right? Mm -hmm. But I think there have been a lot of things that have come together to make this area more attractive for development. And what a great thing, right? Because these are patients who really have to band together to advocate for new therapies, to get attention from the industry. And it's so great to see that that is finally starting to turn around. I think one thing that has led to this is a change by the regulators. I think they're really understanding that they have to kind of meet the companies halfway and provide the right kinds of incentives in terms of market exclusivity, in terms of accelerated review and approval processes, but also in terms of their data requirements for approval. You know, you can't run two giant randomized controlled statistically powered studies in order to show safety and efficacy in rare diseases. The patients just aren't there. So coming together to do what makes sense and what still serves the patients, I think it has really come a long way in terms of people operating in this space. I think if you're starting out in this space, kind of having big eyes about that, and also that the market is going to recognize your time and trouble, if you like, that Mm -hmm. has gone in, the investment by the companies by giving these products premium pricing, I think has been challenging because a lot of these therapies are priced extremely highly. And I think the payers are just starting to struggle with that about how they're going to still deliver reimbursement and care and therapies to the majority of their patients without breaking the bank. So I think that's an area where we still have some ways to go. In terms of developing the therapies, I think a really kind of the key word to me is collaboration. So I've mentioned payers and regulators as two of the critical stakeholders in successful drug development in rare diseases, but obviously your most important stakeholder is the patient. So given that these patients are few and far between, often children, so a vulnerable population, really engaging with the patients and their parents about what's clinically meaningful to them, what their experience with the disease is, And making that trial easy to participate in is critical. So a lot of times for these rare diseases, there are patient advocacy groups. And I think it's really important to engage with them early. But that can be challenging because some of them can range from a 
collection of a few parents, an angry mob, to a really sophisticated and well-established organization that might even help fund research, such as the CF Foundation, Mm -hmm. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. What I've been really surprised at in engaging with some of these patient advocates is, for me, as a physician, my assumptions about what I think is clinically relevant or clinically meaningful in terms of an effect sometimes is not at all in line with what they're thinking. So I'm looking for cures or big changes in patient clinical experience. But a lot of times, these patients are looking for much smaller wins, but that have huge impact on their daily lives. So for a rare skin disease that causes blistering and painful bandage changes for young kids, if they just have one less dressing change a day. That's meaningful. Now, you know, I would have never thought that had I not engaged, right? So I think that partnership and collaboration between the drug developers, the patients and their families and their advocacy, the regulators being aware of, hey, you have an idea of what a clinically important endpoint is, and that's different than the patients and their families and having them engage that way to get the right trial designed, and then engaging with the academicians who've been studying these kids or these diseases for years and years and years without any attention from industry, helping them understand the drug development process, making the trials easy for them to do, because they're often not set up for complex clinical trials with loads of visits and labs that they don't always do, that kind of thing. And then finally, engaging those pairs so they can see it coming, right, and understand, you know, are we going to have to do some kind of health economics study or modeling so we can show the value of that drug to the payers so that we can increase the likelihood of getting in the market? Because the name of the game really here is how can we get these patients who have these rare diseases that have previously gone sort of unnoticed how can we get them access to meaningful medicines that are going to change their lives? And that really takes that collaboration and cooperation across all these really different stakeholders with different agendas. But I think what's been really cool about working in rare diseases is it is a thing that gets people on the same page and gets a team of really different people, if you like, behind a cause to get new medicines to these patients. We talked about different stakeholders. One of the stakeholders was the regulatory bodies. I think if any even investor goes out there and looks and says, orphan diseases, one of the hottest areas to invest in because they're thinking, oh, I understand what's going on. I can get this many years of exclusivity even if I don't have a patent because it's an orphan condition. I can understand that I'm going to get some amount of my clinical trial costs back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get more time on the clock, etc. that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten if I were in a disease for many, many people. Is there something beyond that that, say, a new head of a pharmaceutical company that's going after rare diseases, never been there, that they need to know about how the regulatory bodies act that wouldn't be on paper? That wouldn't be something that you just assume based on looking at the regs. Oh, it must be this way. What would surprise them? I think if you're getting all excited about it's a easier, shorter regulatory path to approval, I think you're kidding yourself a little bit. There's a reason that the regulatory authorities have deconstructed some of these barriers 
but it's still hard and nothing's a slam dunk. I would say the same thing about reimbursement. It's not a slam dunk that you're going to get the premium pricing that you envision because it's a rare disease in kids. And I think people who don't know what they don't know might be overly optimistic about those things. I think it's such a challenge for the regulators because their job is to make sure that what they approve to be marketed is safe and effective and provides an appropriate risk benefit. Now they're trying to do that with 20 patients or less in an ultra rare disease. How can we really be assured, especially with some of the activity in rare disease is around genetic rare diseases, inherited genetic diseases, just because of the explosion we've had in really understanding genomics, proteomics, and our ability to look at that data at such a large scale. You know, that's relatively new, so we're able to target genetic rare diseases, but do we really understand how durable those gene therapies are over time? We can't with a 20-person trial that lasts with a one-and-done therapy that you ask for approval on. So I think these are sorts of the long-term challenges from a regulatory standpoint that I think people will have. And I think what is both cool and challenging is that we're working on it together. But again, it comes back to that collaboration and partnership, really getting into the room with all the right parties and stakeholders involved so that we can make the right decisions about that. And, and going in eyes wide open, I was speaking with the CEO of a gene therapy company recently, and he was reflecting that with the gene therapy, his company has to get its head around monitoring those patients for life, and then maybe monitoring their offspring for the long-term effects of changing someone's genome that has maybe an impact for future generations. So these are the hard things. Getting back to your question about the regulators, the regulators will likely mandate that, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's their job is to continue to study and evaluate and analyze the data from these patients so they can continually update their view of the risk-benefit profile. And so that's core of their job. The way it looks in a rare disease might be very different than what it looked like in some of our other traditional sort of small molecule trials. There's a down-the-road impact that's different for an orphan company that might not be there for a typical drug company. The here and now, though, is what I'm kind of interested in. If you're running into clinical trials and you have an orphan condition, it was not a huge secret, but was a secret there that it wasn't the trials that stopped you. It was manufacturing that stopped you. Like your manufacturing lagged behind your trials. Your trials did get done earlier. I'm hearing from you that trials and filling trials more challenging than perhaps it was before, perhaps now because there are many people hitting the same patients. Is patient availability a big problem? For some, for some, I think you can look at cancer trials, whether they're rare tumors or quote-unquote run-of-the-mill tumors. There's competition in that space, and certainly it has always been the case that when there's a step change in the science or technology, our understanding of the origin of disease, the pathophysiology, if there's potential there 
for a new therapy based on that scientific discovery or insight. And it seems like it's going to be impactful and therefore commercially attractive. Then the companies will pile on, right? Because those are all the characteristics that make a therapy and a disease match up to be something that people are interested in from an industry standpoint. So that competition for patients is always there. I think it's particularly challenging, obviously, in rare diseases because the denominator is smaller. But I think it also depends on the area. There are certain indications where we're seeing a lot of clinical trials being kicked off. Duchenne's muscular dystrophy is one that comes to mind. And there are only so many patients. Yeah. Certainly, for all indications, patient recruitment can be your rate-limiting step, enrollment. It's obviously super critical for rare diseases. And I think a way to address that particular challenge, again, is collaborating with the patient advocacy groups, really understanding that patient experience and removing barriers for their participation. A challenge in rare diseases is often that these patients are seen in academic, tertiary care, super specialized clinics, and the patients might not live near that clinic and come in specifically for a clinical trial. That's a huge burden on patients and their families. So what can companies do to remove that barrier? You can provide travel. Mm -hmm. But then wait, it's a really sick kid who has difficulty being moved because of whatever their condition is. They might need special equipment. So you might need to engage a travel vendor that specializes in medical transport. Getting back to your question about a newbie company who's starting to dip a toe in this area, even if you're a seasoned drug developer, were you really thinking you were going to have to engage a specialty travel agency to transport medically ill people across country borders? Like I'm thinking of Europe, for instance, where you're going to have to cross country lines to get these patients seen. How's that regulated? What are the implications of that? Do you need a visa? (laughs) Things that you would never think were part of your job as a drug developer. But these are the special things that come up with rare diseases. I've never seen the travel line item on a P&L for a forecast before the drug was launched. Not once. I've seen a lot of forecasts. Right. Right. And I think that just reflects where the patients are. They're rare. And they might be geographically far away from where you need to do the trial because you need the investigator who's an expert, a center that can handle complexity because this isn't uh, show up and take a antihypertensive and we'll check your blood pressure. Not that those trials are easy either, but your investigational product might be a cell-based product, might be a gene therapy, might be an infusion. These are complicated things in terms of administration, and we haven't even talked about storing, handling, preparing the investigational product. If it sells, as an example, if they're stem cells, let's say, that requires a certain kind of storage and a thawing procedure and reconstituting things that you got to take into consideration that might not be in the general wheelhouse of a company that hasn't dealt with that before. You mentioned both Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and you also mentioned payers, which I can't help but bring up a recent example of a product that was launched on such a low data set that payers weren't really 
equipped to handle things that were approved, but the data were not completely compelling. So an asterisk got written around a drug that just launched that wasn't there before. Payers are excluding, in some cases, paying for this drug, even though it's an approved drug, even though there's nothing really else for these patients. I wonder if you have a point of view on how, given the types of allowances that we're seeing from regulatory bodies, they are approving drugs with less data. How is that going to be handled by payers and the rest of the system? That's a good example. I think there are other recent examples of drugs with really steep price tags, $600,000 for a single treatment, right? Where the payers are really stuck, and it's such a politically charged thing. In the case that you brought up about Duchenne's, it is hard not to be emotional. Of course. And at the FDA adcoms, the advisory committees where the committee of experts hears about the data but there's been a good trend, I think, to include patients and patient advocates to describe the impact and their experience. I think the downside to that is it gets really emotional really quickly, and I certainly can't be critical of that because you're talking about parents who are just, they want to do something because something feels better than nothing. And even if the data aren't as convincing as you would like it to be, I think there's a ton of pressure to approve drugs in these spaces so that there's something. I think that if you're a regulatory body such as the US FDA and all of this is within the public record and it's covered by the media, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to make decisions where it looks like to sort of your average person who doesn't have the scientific background to really dissect clinical trial data. It looks like, oh, they're withholding a life-saving therapy from this really vulnerable population. How evil is the FDA? You know, it's a thankless job there, right? Because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If that therapy is shown to be harmful later, It's still their fault. Of course, yeah. So I think that's challenging. For the payers, people tend to think of them as money-making machines that don't care about their patients. I think it's an important reality to understand that it's not unlimited funds. It's a pie. (laughs) And if you cut off a piece to give to this, there's less pie for that. And I think that's really when trying to understand from a value standpoint for the payers, if we're successful with this therapy and it has the effect that we are predicting, here is what it will save you in terms of future dollars. So, you know, this notion of value-based medicine, health economics, is important. This is why we kind of are where we are in the U.S. with continued spending on healthcare is because as a culture, we don't want to acknowledge that it's not infinite funding for all. And then we bristle because it's our nature, at least I'm talking about the U.S. here, to want to have the freedom or the liberty to choose whatever therapy we want or whatever intervention we want. In reality, it's a finite pool of money and they're looking, the payers are looking for 
the best spend that is most valuable to most people. Getting back to your question about what should a rare disease company know, the value and the impact of that therapy, value isn't always all money. If they're able to have a benefit for these patients, one less dressing change mm-hmm. might mean for that kid with the rare skin disease, might mean less of a burden emotionally on the family so that someone who wasn't able to work outside the home now can work outside the home. I mean, these are the sorts of things that we need to put into the calculator when we're trying to describe value. I've talked around a lot of the different issues. If I'm a payer today, it's hard, right? Because again, you don't want to look like the bad guy who's not paying for life-saving therapy, even though you've independently or your organization has looked at the data and you're not convinced that it's a good use of the healthcare dollars you have to dole out. I certainly think that the payers have every right, I guess, to make those decisions. I think how you talk about them is very challenging. Yeah, and I think as we've talked through this, Judith, one of the things that I would have as take home if I were a CEO of a rare disease company is that I may have thought that I was going to get a pass from payers. And frankly, they would have gotten a pass from payers even just a few years ago because it doesn't matter what price you charge. If it's only one patient within their entire system, it's not worth their time to review it. They just put it on the highest copay and the end, right? It's done. But now, in an era where data may be sketchier, not for any fault of your own, but because the FDA has decided that they're going to allow it because it's important to have these medicines out there, you have a payer fight in your hand. You have to. You have to. You have to. And so I think some people among us would say that's how the market's supposed to work. There are checks and balances around all these things, and ultimately people get to define and choose what they will and won't pay for. I think especially if you have a legitimate justification because you can say this doesn't fit our criteria in terms of robustness of effect, and it's breaking the bank in this other way, which will inhibit our ability to reimburse for something else just as important, but to a different set of people. Again, hard conversations, but I think the right conversations to be having. I think people got bullish on this with the hepatitis C treatments as they as were. They should have, yeah. Right, right. Because people thought, whatever, $60,000, $80,000, are you crazy? No one's ever going to reimburse that. But I think. And, and they didn't at the end of the day, <laughs> as, it, as it turned out. Well, Because, you know, then they're looking at their numbers, this many patients on my roster with hepatitis C, what is that going to do in terms of my ability to take care of more people? We're not going to solve the issues of reimbursement in our healthcare system today between the two of us. But I think the more people understand the landscape, especially as a drug developer who really cares about getting meaningful therapies to the patients, it comes down to engaging all and really understanding the different needs of your stakeholders. You know, when I first started my career in pharma, it was still in the era of Me Too drugs, and I think our commercial colleagues will look at us like, well, don't worry your geeky little heads about it. Just get the drug approved and then throw it over the fence and we'll sell it, right? Yeah, no, everything will be fine. Don't worry. Everybody, we have a yeah. large sales force. Yeah, we have a large sales force. We have unlimited sticky notepads and pens to give if, out. If that's where it ended, we would have been fine. I think got a little bit farther than sticky pads, yeah. if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, sure. The uh, You know, I'm happy to say the bad old days of pharma in that particular way are over. 
as a physician, I care that we have meaningful, differentiated choices out there for our patients and that we don't clutter the landscape with things that don't offer something meaningful to the patients. All in all, I think rare diseases really showcases a lot of the issues that are there for everybody and everything in the industry. It showcases the issues and they're also sort of enhanced in this space because of so many of the things we've talked about. Judith Nunn-Cashin, thanks so much for being on the Cineos Health Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk to a particular challenge that you have at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com. We're consultants. That's what we do. It's a pie. And if you cut off a piece to give to this, there's less pie for that.